are listening to the Unsung Lung Podcast, presented by Alberta Lung. Okay, I imagine that our guest would have heard that noise a lot prior to his retirement. For those who can't connect the dots on that reference, I'll just spill the beans. And sorry to those of you who listened to this show in your car and I just scared the living daylights out of. Our guest today is a retired RCMP officer and I am so excited to get into the interview with him. While I would be very interested in his career given my own career path as a future lawyer someday... Today we're going to be talking about, you guessed it, lungs. And not just any old lung health conversation. We'll be discussing our guest's battle with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and the double lung transplant that he went through just under a year ago. My apologies for not introducing myself earlier. For new listeners, my name is Jacob Sperling and I am the host of the Unsung Lung Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today and for you longtime listeners, an extra big thank you to you. I have been having meetings with the team at Alberta Lung, and we have the podcast guest list planned for many months ahead, and I do have to say, we got a pretty incredible lineup coming for you. Speaking of Alberta Lung, make sure you head over to our website at www.ablung.ca after listening to this show. There, you can find information packages on many different lung diseases, renderings of our new project, Breathing Space, which is a lung transplant home away from home, which my guest and myself will be discussing today, and links to donate. So without your generous support, this podcast wouldn't exist. So thank you from the bottom of all of our hearts at Alberta Lung. Okay, now back to today's show. Our guest's name is Ian Curry, and as I mentioned earlier, he is a retired RCMP officer. How his journey led him to be a guest on our show was his diagnosis of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which is also known as IPF, and this was just prior to COVID setting our world as we know it into a spin of chaos. Since his diagnosis, he's been on an incredible journey from getting upgraded on the IPF severity scale to the lung transplant boot camp that we've heard about on this show a few times to recovering from the massive operation. Today we'll be discussing topics like his first signs of lung health decline, which uh, he still experienced as he was a police officer. We'll also be talking about a lack of social support post-transplant and the importance of organ donation. Again, just a massive thank you to all of our listeners from all of us here behind the scenes of this show. You make what we do so worth it. So, without any more delay, let's get into my conversation with Ian Curry, an incredible retired police officer with an incredible story to tell. All right, well, this is going to be an incredibly interesting conversation today, and I am so excited to have you, Ian, on the Unsung Lung podcast. How's it going? Very good. Very good, Jacob. 
Awesome. I, I'm particularly excited because of your background and we'll get into that. But uh, so diving right into it, uh, let's go right into my first question. So before we dive into things, all things lung health, I'm wondering if you can give our listeners a little bit of a background of who Ian Curry is, maybe about uh, a little bit about your career as an RCMP officer, hobbies, things of that nature, just a little so we can get to know you. Well, um, I actually grew up in the Ottawa Valley, and um, I um, had applied for both the uh, uh, the OPP and the RCMP at a young age, and uh, I was actually accepted into the OPP first. And after discussion, and coincidentally, the next week I had a call from the RCMP, and I chose them. I my my belief at that time was I wanted to see the country, and I did. <laughs> so uh, I joined in uh, 1980, signed in in Ottawa, off to Regina for six months of training. And my first posting was in uh, Cornerbrook in Newfoundland, Labrador. And uh, I had the opportunity to uh, spend six years there, six years in Labrador, two years on the or four years actually on the Labrador coast and uh, two years in Goose Bay. And it was at that point uh, I had an opportunity to uh, enter the forensic field, which I did, which uh, subsequently resulted in a transfer to Calgary and uh, um, several years here. And uh, again, another opportunity arose to instruct at the Canadian Police College, which I did. And I was there for four years and then off to North Battleford, where I was in charge of the unit there and subsequently um, promoted to the uh, what they referred to as the division FIS manager. So I was responsible and I oversaw the uh, seven FIS units in Saskatchewan. And then I uh, uh, applied for and. tested and through an oral board uh, uh, became a commissioned officer in the RCMP resulting in a subsequent transfer to Edmonton and uh, where I worked various jobs and uh, including being a critical incident commander for six years and uh, retiring in 2016 with uh, two months short of 36 years of service. So uh, I uh, had an opportunity to see the country. I worked in every province uh, to some degree. And uh, uh, I wouldn't have traded it for anything. Yeah, that is that. That is incredible. First of all, thank you for your service. I, I can't understate that enough. Uh, it, thank you. It, it's amazing. So I do I do have a specific question for you. When we, when we got to know each other uh, before, a couple of weeks ago, you did mention that you were one of the top analysts in fingerprint analysis across the country. Can you maybe speak to that a bit? It's very interesting. Yeah, I uh, at uh, I, I I had an opportunity, especially uh, when when I was at the Canadian Police College, to uh, become a lot more involved with uh, the analysis of fingerprints and you know understanding how they are left what the actions mean. Um, and, uh, I, uh, uh, was one of co one of, t- uh, two 
who actually designed uh, what we referred to as a friction ridge analysis report, which essentially explained how a fingerprint was left in layman's terms, along with uh, diagrams. And um, because it, it can be very confusing to those persons who aren't familiar with it. And uh, it, uh, uh, it's, it's actually a very interesting field. And I was uh, the lone Canadian representative on the um, what they referred to as the Scientific Working Group for Friction Ridge Analysis Study and Technology, which was sponsored by the FBI and the National uh, Justice Institute in the U.S. So uh, there was international representatives along with uh, uh, many U.S. representatives. And uh, um, what they were looking for was... Uh, um, a way to uh, set standards in the in the United States, whereas in Canada we have two schools that can teach fingerprint analysis, and in the U.S. Uh, there's hundreds of different ways that they can learn, and there's not a lot of consistency. So uh, I was on that for five, six years. So uh, very interesting, very interesting. Yeah, that is an incredibly interesting topic. I, I, I can imagine that it led down a whole bunch of routes for you to get afterwards. And people are probably clamoring for your services after that expertise. Yeah, well, it, uh, yeah, it was interesting because you get a lot of difficult fingerprints to look at and to be able to explain why something occurred or why it looks the way it does. And uh, which is totally different from the pristine uh, fingerprint taken in a controlled environment. Right. Yeah, of course. Awesome. So thank you for that background. It's, it's really great to know, to get to know you as a person. So going back to where your lung health story began back, obviously this is a lung health podcast. So we're going to talk about that for the vast majority. Uh, I'm wondering if we can go back even before you were diagnosed with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and when you first started noticing signs of lung problems, I believe you mentioned that this was near the end of your career. So maybe we could touch on that. Yeah, I, uh, my, um, uh, I, I did notice closer to the end of my service that um, things that I was doing um, uh, of a physical nature resulted in me being out of breath a lot quicker than what it would have been years before and uh, um i i attributed that uh, or much of that at, the, at that time to uh simply not exercising as much as i could just my my schedule and being on call so much but uh, uh, sometimes a poor excuse but um, it worked for me at the time and uh, but yeah i did notice it then and subsequently um as uh, as I entered my um, retirement, um, there was times, I, I, yeah, things were, I, I was getting out of breath. I, you know, I, I could go up one or two flights of stairs, no promise. But if I was going up three or four, I, I could certainly notice it. And uh, sometimes my legs might get a little more tired than, than normal. And, I mean, but the thing is, I was able to get into a regular physical routine too, which w was good. Um, and then um, 
we were, uh, I think it would have been the late part of 2019. And uh, I had a cough. I just could not get rid of it. And actually, it was starting to hurt when I was coughing because I was coughing so much. So uh, upon the insistence of my, uh, my dear wife, um, I went for a chest x-ray. Well, I went to see the doctor and uh, sent for a chest x-ray. And on uh, Christmas Eve 2019, I get a call from one of the doctors in the clinic where I had attended. My doctor was not there. And he tells me it appears that uh, it appears that you have some type of interstitial lung disease. So, uh, Merry Christmas. <laughs> um, subsequent follow-up appointments then with uh, my personal physician, and uh, several discussions, and uh, we arranged for a high-resolution CT scan, and. Uh, uh, our first option then was uh, through Alberta Health Services, and it was a significant wait. And uh, because of my concern, I asked him if he had any concern with me going privately, and he said no. So uh, that was subsequently arranged. And in the meantime, um, we had previous plans. Uh, we'd gone away and returned uh, two weeks early because of COVID. And uh, so this resulted in a slight delay at the uh, clinic where I was getting my CT scan. And, uh, but I was able to get in and subsequently uh, diagnosis of pulmonary fibrosis was confirmed. Well, it, that's what it was believed. So, so um, Again, my personal physician had arranged for me to uh, see Dr. Charlene Fell at the uh, self-health campus in Calgary. And uh, uh, she had a, a fellow with her at that time, and uh, Dr. Locke, and, uh, who's now in Saskatchewan. And um, uh, we went through all the process and then subsequently met with Dr. Fell. and. Uh, um, a, a subsequent determination of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis was determined. And I, I had been exposed to many different chemicals, uh, certainly from the forensic side. Um, you know, I'd be in burn, burnt out buildings, uh, uh, in, a in an enclosed garage, examining burnt vehicles, uh, moldy areas, um, like it wasn't such a big concern. And um, uh, those those factors certainly came into play. So um, that would have been about May, June of 2020. And uh, that's when my life kind of took a 180 degree turn. And uh, um, yeah, it was uh, uh, a bit of a shocker, I, I must say. Yeah. You know, so, so I, was, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I still felt I still felt good, and uh, you know, uh, but it it certainly um, uh, would play on your 
play on your mind. <laughs> yeah, of course. So, so in in response to that being it being a shock, was that the main? I don't know if you could say shock is an emotion, but was that what kind of went through your head in in the subsequent days after you returned from your vacation and getting that diagnosis? What what were the emotions? Was it like not knowing what was going forward, shock, fear? I guess. Well, um, my sister had also been diagnosed with IPF and had subsequently gone through a, um, um, a double lung transplant. And it, um, I, so I, I had a pretty good idea what was going on. And, um, now, uh, I, 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 maintain the positive attitude because if, if you're negative, it's just going to make things worse. And, uh, uh, I was, I was resolved to be uh, physically fit and I, I, you know, I did pretty good there. So it, um, it, uh, was a challenge and it, I, I suppose the hardest part was, uh, uh, telling my kids, uh, you know, what exactly was going on because, they certainly knew what the, what uh, their aunt had gone through, and um, it uh, you know it uh, I, I kept my the knowledge of what was going on was kept to a very small circle. Certainly, certainly in the beginning, and um, you know it's not something you're going to advertise because, um, quite honestly, there's not a lot of people that understand what. Uh, pulmonary fibrosis is and uh, you know it's a cold well you'll get over that type thing and you know such is not the case definitely so after uh, i'm wondering after you first received that diagnosis what were the steps that that followed did you notice a physical decline in your lungs or was that was the decline more established by ongoing tests well um, again, certainly we were going through COVID at that time too. So, um, maybe in a roundabout way, it was kind of a blessing in disguise, but there wasn't a lot of interaction with other people. And if you're outside or if you're in a public area wearing a mask, um, the, uh, you can walk outside quite nicely, uh, no, it's not not a real big issue. So, uh, I I I was able to do upwards of fifteen thousand steps a day. Like there's there's some great walking trails around home, and it was, uh, uh, you know, just it, it it was fun, and I could maintain a level of fitness that um, every now and then especially on inclines, I'd have to stop, get my breath, but be able to move on. So that, that wasn't such a, a big concern to me at that point there, but, um, closer to, it would have been, um, the end of 2021. Um, I, I had been going for regular, uh, six minute walk tests and pulmonary function tests at the self health campus. And, um, I was doing a six minute walk test and I, I had to be stopped because 
my heart rate had uh, elevated to such a degree that uh, uh, their protocols required me to stop. So that started a bit of a different process. And in the meantime, though, uh, I, I should say, um, Dr. Fell had discussed with me um, the options of uh, a lung transplant and that uh, uh, I could meet with the lung transplant team to uh, get a better understanding. And certainly uh, with my wife, Fernan and I, that discussion was had and um, um, you know, we were on board 100%. Like, uh, uh, I want to be around for a while. So uh, I knew what eventually would happen. So let's, let's prepare for this. So I had initially met with Dr. Helmerson at the Southern Alberta Lung Transplant Team, uh, located in the uh, Foothills Hospital. And um, uh, he went through the process and he didn't pull any punches, which I, I'm okay with that. Uh, I, I prefer that. Uh, he was one of four doctors that's at the, uh, that's with the team, along with uh, um, nurse practitioner, who was essentially uh, uh, your main point of contact. And um, I refer to it as a medical on steroids. I I went through more tests than Kellogg's got cornflakes, or what what it seemed to be at the time, and. Uh, um, I, I again, I appreciate they don't want to put a set of good lungs into somebody that may have cancer or, or something like that. And um, at the end, and it, it was a longer process because of COVID. Again, uh, going to different uh, different clinics and whatnot. And um, um, uh, I got the clean bill of health. Which is good. Now, a few minor things, but uh, again, in the big scheme, um, everything was good. And there's three ratings um, with respect to the lung transplant team. There are three levels, uh, zero, one, and two. Um, and I was rated as, as a zero. And that means that um, I am cleared for a lung transplant. But I, uh, there's no immediate need. So I, I was happy to be a zero. And uh, so going, moving forward to this six-minute walk test, um, then I met with uh, Dr. Thakar from the lung, lung transplant team. And... Uh, he based, and, and again, a lot of these meetings were via Zoom, too. Uh, and occasionally, we would do in person. And he said, uh, Ian, we're going to look at uh, uh, moving you up to a one. So, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's when things really hit home. So, um, um, going, okay. He says, now... We're going to have to run you through a few steps here because I was actually getting close to one year, two year review of of um, all my tests. So he had, there was a need to do some of the tests again as part of the regular process. 
these were done. And, uh, he said, uh, okay. Um, um, and, and what they do is actually the doctors here and the doctors, uh, uh, at the, um, I guess, Northern Alberta transplant team meet and discuss patients. And, uh, he, uh, he comes back and says, yeah, you're, you're now, at, now at a one and, uh, have your suitcase packed essentially. And we knew the process and, um, we knew what we had to do. We were very familiar with, uh, um, the coordinator who had, uh, uh, had conversations with us and, uh, which was, um, was good. You know, we, you know, we knew what we had to do, but then at the same time now, um, in the winter months, uh, I, I'd be on the treadmill and, um, uh, I started to notice like, uh, I'm losing my breath here, you know? So, uh, I, I really started concentrating on what my oxygen concentration was and for those familiar you know it, it calgary basically averages around 94 to 96 what your re- reading should be because we are a little bit higher elevation and um, um i was going up the stairs and i was hitting 69 so um at that point then i started oxygen for uh, exertion i could still go on the treadmill i put her up to four to six liters of oxygen and i could work away and, and the same with some weights as well um that quickly evolved into um um having to uh use oxygen on a full-time basis including uh, at night. So I, I was on oxygen 24 hours a day. And this is all around the same time, which happened very quickly, actually. Um, uh, so it would have been the latter part of uh, 2021 into early 2022. So I believe I was listed officially around the end of February. And on April 9th, I got the call, uh, asking if I would, uh, wanted to, uh, or would I accept a, a lung transplant? And, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, so that, that kicked in and we were ready. Uh, essentially, uh, we were on the road within an hour heading up to Edmonton. <clears throat> to the University of Alberta Hospital. And um, we uh, uh, we knew that the transplant, if it went ahead, would uh, proceed the following day, but they wanted me in that the night before for any pre-op uh, that needed to be done. So um, at uh, two o'clock on, uh, it was a Saturday afternoon, I got wheeled down and uh, we were a go. And within, oh, I'd say two minutes of arriving outside the door, I I, I was asleep. And uh, 
uh, I guess I woke up at uh, three o'clock or so the, the following uh, afternoon, and um, I could hear my wife saying that uh, they're going to take the tube out of my throat. And uh, yeah, I, I guess I had a bit of a uh, a reaction. I, I, I was in pain, but uh, I most of that could have been attributed to. Uh, being on the operating table and in a certain position and my, basically my muscles were just, they were shot. So, uh, that, that was painful, but it, it went away fairly quickly. So yeah, yeah, that's kind of it in a nutshell. (laughs) Very interesting. It's it's a great story of just kind of exactly what happens in the process. So in right before, I'm not sure if it happens right before, but I'm wondering if we can go back just a little bit before the actual transplant and how did, I want to ask you how you found the boot camp that all lung transplant patients have to go through and, and how, how much, uh, I guess, in advance did that occur before you actually got the transplant? Well, uh, I actually went up shortly after I was diagnosed or given the zero classification because I, that is part of the requirement and you need to attend. And uh, if you don't, well, you, you're you going to be taken off the list. And hey, I'm good with that. I'm, I, I consider myself a rule follower. And if they say jump, basically, uh, I say how high. So um, again, COVID impacted. Uh, it was supposed to have been three weeks. Well, it had dropped down to three weeks because uh, it's normally... I believe six weeks and we actually only went for two weeks. Um, and three of us started out on the boot camp, and, uh, one of the, uh, uh, people that was on the, uh, on, on this boot camp, um, was, uh, called away the second morning and she subsequently had her, a lung transplant then. So um, down to two of us, and uh, um, it, it's been, uh, again, there were not a lot of people there. And uh, simply because, again, of COVID regulations, and uh, they, anybody that, um, uh, lung transplant patients, that would have been in the hospital would have been brought down in the afternoon and we were in the morning and many of the in-person meetings that would have normally occurred had occurred prior to and after the boot camp uh, via zoom now we did meet with some, with some of the the medical team and uh, um you know all very professional great people you know, and it, you know, it, it was a good experience um, from a physical perspective. You know, that, I, again, that wasn't a, at that time, certainly was not a big concern for me. And uh, uh, I enjoy lifting weights. I enjoy, I enjoy walking. I, I can't run now because of a knee operation, but uh, um, yeah, it, it was, uh, it was good. Um, but not being able to talk to a lot of people, um, you know, so 
and of course, working with the physiotherapy staff, they're, they're great. You know, they, they've seen it, done it. And, um, they're very, very supportive. So, yeah. And you mentioned jumping. So we're going before the transplant. Now I'm going to jump afterwards. You, I'm going to combine two questions into this one. So you mentioned to me that you felt that there was a little bit of a lack of social support, but also that you had, uh, a couple that helped you along post transplant. So I'm wondering if you could elaborate on why there was, why you think there was less in social support and then how that couple helped you through it. Yeah. Well, um, family support was, was phenomenal, but the social aspect, uh, after, after the transplant, the only time you really had an opportunity to interact with people would have been when you were at physiotherapy or if you were in the waiting room, uh, because every week afterwards, twice a week, you go for your pulmonary function tests. Twice a week, you go for your blood tests. And I was going every day to, uh, uh, to physio. Um, so you got an opportunity to meet uh, patients at various stages. And a lot of times they were coming back for their pulmonary function tests or uh, whatnot that lived in the Edmonton area. So you had had an opportunity to have some general discussions, but again, you know, you could be sitting down, and two minutes later, you're called in. So, uh, you know that 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 was um, that was frustrating um, because, like, this is a big change in your personal life, and you are walking around with somebody else's lungs in you, and you know. It, it, it's 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 hard to imagine unless you've been through it and uh, you see you know like theoretically uh you shouldn't be there but because of somebody's gift uh you are and you know that that certainly weighs on you um so like it was very good coming in um to physio at that time after my after my surgery is because uh, there was two boot camps that had, had taken place and you had an opportunity and the physio staff would introduce you to certain people so that you can actually talk and um, you know you you had an opportunity to speak with people that perhaps had a lung transplant uh, two three weeks prior to you or two to three, four weeks after you so that, um, um, you know, you, uh, you, you were able to talk to them. So sometimes, you know, you're doing your exercises and, you know, half an hour later, you got to kind of get back to them because <laughs> you've been talking that long. Um, that's why, well, and I think we'll talk on this later, but breathing space, uh, certainly uh, a project that's, being sponsored by the Alberta Lung is, I, I, I can't say enough about it because we were in a residence across the road. And uh, uh, essentially, you walked into your little apartment and that's where you stay uh, because there's, 
There was no common area. There was a lot of people from the hospital there. And <laughs> excuse me, we knew of uh, one other individual that had gone through lung transplant. And, uh, um, but he, he was a long time in the hospital, but uh, certainly we were able to interact with his wife a little bit when you would meet him in the uh, <laughs> coming and going type thing. And certainly at physio uh, afterwards when he was able to come down. Um, so uh, very dear friends of uh, ours, uh, Eric and Deb Howard, who lived uh, um, outside Calgary as well. Uh, I, I had worked with Eric uh, in the previous years when I was in Calgary. And um, he had been the recipient of a double lung transplant in October of 2020. And uh, as a result of IPF as well. And we certainly had uh, several discussions prior to uh, me heading to uh, Edmonton. And uh, uh, we were back and forth uh, on, on the phone uh, constantly, uh, well, uh, weekly when, um, we were in Edmonton and, uh, what would, you know, you say, well, start out with a half hour conversation and then would turn into two hours. So <laughs> it, uh, um, we could certainly bounce all kinds of things off, uh, well off both of them because, <laughs> We, you know, we, we concentrate on the on the patient. Well, yes, uh, that that's one certainly important aspect. But uh, my wife Fern, who is your caregiver, um, that's a whole different situation. Like that is very difficult. And um, again, there's a sense of loneliness because you know you're you're away from your common environment. And um, um, Eric's wife, Deb, was able to pass on a lot of things, you know, and it like it, it's a difficult, difficult job. And then because their world is now turned upside down too. And to be able to bounce things off somebody, you know, who's been through it, um, I, I can't say enough. And, you know, um, Eric and Deb, well, they're there for us and we're there for them as well. So it's, um, um, but yeah, that, that, that's certainly the inability to interact socially, um, certainly wasn't helpful. Yeah, of course. I, I, I can't imagine what I, it's, it's a hard enough process as it is, as it is and not being able to have that social interaction and just get your mind off things. Sometimes, sometimes you don't even want to be talking about everything you're going through. You just want friendship. So uh, you mentioned it already breathing space. So we might as well dive into that. Uh, so Alberta lungs breathing space is going to be a lung transplant home away from home. And so similar to what you said, uh, the social support would be absolutely fantastic for the patient, but not only for the patient, also 
like for people like your wife that are caregivers. So I'm just wondering on a general basis and maybe even more specific to you, like the social support aspect, why do you think breathing space is so needed uh, in our province and, and Edmonton specifically? Well, in Edmonton, obviously, because that's where lung transplants would take place. Um, it, it's a facility that's, uh, I believe, designed 35, 37 rooms. Um, that you uh, can stay at while you're going through this process. Your caregiver would be able to stay there while you're in the hospital. Um, the main aspect of it is um, from a financial perspective, people would be able to stay there free. Um, I, I can't imagine, and I'm very fortunate that um, from the financial perspective, staying in a, an apartment was was not a concern for us. But what upsets me is when people who are eligible for a um, double lung transplant decline because of the costs, or they're staying in substandard accommodations after their transplant. And um, that that part, you know, it, it is a cost and depending on the situation, people are leaving jobs um, to, to come up and care for people. Uh, sometimes you have different family people coming in for a week at a time. And uh, yeah, like it's, um, uh, it's a very costly expense. And also considering like, University of Alberta Hospital covers the Prairie Provinces along with um, parts of the territories, Northwest Territories, and parts of BC. So, um, you know, there, there's quite a few people there from Saskatchewan. And uh, um, sorry. There's, there's, um, uh, so there's, there's, there's people from all over the place. And, and if you're in Edmonton, obviously, you know, you, you don't need that support if you're able to stay at home. So, um, but the biggest thing I would suggest is the opportunity to meet with other people. Um, the, the building is designed in such a way that there's some common areas. Um, you, you can, and, and private areas, you can be by yourself or you can be with other people. And um, um, the opportunity to eat in somewhat of a communal atmosphere. Um, again, you're going to get a chance to, to meet people, transplant patients and caregivers who are going through the same thing as you. And I think that connection would certainly help. It's not something that you need 24 hours a day, <clears throat> but it's something that would be uh, very beneficial to, to have somebody to lean on. If somebody's been, you know, you're, you're, you're just getting out of hospital and that's where you're going. And, uh, uh, somebody's been there for two months 
they can tell you what you got ahead of you a little bit. And, you know, obviously you're listening to your doctors and, and in no way should uh, what others are saying um, dictate your the, the medical aspect. But certainly, you know, they can tell you some of the goods and bads of what's going to what what you're uh, looking forward to <laughs> or what's ahead of you. So, um, yeah, having that opportunity is, is good. And you're going to have trained people there that uh, uh, certainly are, are excellent resource people. And, you know, I, I just I, I, I can't say enough good things about it, both from a financial and a social support system that um, would exist that certainly does not exist now. Yeah, definitely. We, we know it doesn't. So we've we've been working. I, I say we, the, the team at Alberta Long, I, I unfortunately don't work there part time anymore, but obviously try to get the word out as much as possible. But the team at Alberta Long is working tirelessly to fundraise and build the house. It's not cheap. It, it's definitely not cheap. It obviously in the millions. So we need all the help we can get. But in, in jumping forward to the topic of organ donation, obviously this entire conversation is wrapped around that that topic. This podcast is very timely as Green Shirt Day is just around the corner in April. So for those who don't know what Green Shirt Day is, it began after the Humboldt bus crash and it is championed by the parents of Logan Boulay. So the day is all about raising awareness for organ donation and the importance that this has in our society. So I'm wondering, Ian, why is Green Shirt Day so important to you and why do you believe that it's just a great initiative? Well, somewhat connected. Um, my wife's cousin, uh, his son, Logan Schatz, was the actually the captain of the Humboldt Broncos, and he died in that same bus crash. Um, tragic, uh, you, you know. Can't say, you know, just can't say enough. But um, Logan Boulay, who's originally from Lethbridge. Um, he, um, the, the crash occurred on April 6th. He, he passed away on the 7th and, um, um, he had had a discussion, uh, with his parents, um, not long before this and, um, said that he wanted to be an organ donor as a result of a death of a close friend of his. And, um, uh, subsequently, Word got out that his uh, organ donation uh, saved six lives. And uh, they say that in the weeks that followed, um, it was the largest ever uh, signing of people wishing to uh, donate their organs. So it referred to as the, the Logan Boulay effect. And, um, you know, some of the, like, there's all kinds of stats out there, but, you know, they say 90% of Canadians support organ donation, but only 32% register. And, and part of the, part of the whole process is, um, first off, you need to register. Okay. And certainly in Alberta. And in there's various ways in most provinces, but in Alberta, uh, you can register. You can actually register through the Alberta registries. And there's a couple other different processes. 
And if you want to find out, all you got to do is Google organ donation in Alberta. Um, the second and probably the most important aspect is you have to tell your family. Okay. Um, because if you, you do this on your own and nobody understands your wishes, uh, it could be difficult. And, um, you know, they're not easy discussions to have. And, um, you know, you have that chance to sit down with your family and say, listen, you know, if this ever happens, then, uh, be, let it be understood that, uh, if, uh, if I'm a viable candidate, that I wish my organs to be donated. And, um, you know, you have to be able to get that message across. Otherwise, you know, if, um, you know, somebody at a hospital says, um, your son, daughter, um, husband, wife, whatever the case may be, has indicated that he wanted to, and I say he, but uh, wanted to donate uh, their organs, and you're not aware of it, um, you know, you can be saying no. And um, um, whereas if you'd had that discussion prior to, you know, it may have made a, a significant difference. So, you know, uh, and like April shirt day, I mean, April shirt day, uh, green shirt day is coming up April 7th. And, uh, I, I'd encourage anybody to go to the, uh, Google green shirt day and you'll, you'll have an opportunity to see what it's all about. And, uh, you can purchase, uh, various items. Well, green shirts, that's the big thing, um, to help support the, the cause, you know, so that's, that's my little pitch there, and I think um, um, it, it's something that has certainly brought about a lot of awareness, and um, it has increased organ donations across the country, And uh, but we can still do a lot more. Yeah, of course, definitely. So just so it's easier for our listeners, we are going to put the link to the Green Shirt Day website in the show notes, so you don't even have to Google it. It's there for you. Just click the link straight to the website so you don't have an excuse anymore to support it's right there so in, in wrapping everything up kind of uh with with one final question at at the end of our conversation when you and i ian got to know each other uh you said something that i found very profound and you mentioned that since your lungs transplant you have made a point of respecting and honoring each day so i'm wondering what this means to you in your day-to-day -day life and how you go about putting that phrase into practice well, um, I actually consider my uh, uh, consider myself to have a second birthday, and that's April ninth, or yeah, April ninth. And um, I'm probably not here or speaking to you if I did not have a lung transplant. Um, I had an opportunity to discuss this with one of the the doctors at the transplant team up north and uh, viewing of my um, of my lungs, um, my old lungs, uh, the the statement and I and I asked and I said I'm not certainly holding anybody speak to the player. I said, but I'm curious. I said, how long do you think I had? 
And the response was, well, you probably would have made it to the end of the year. So um, I was able to, or, you know, the, the areas within the, the photographs were shown, the, the honeycombing, which is very common with IPF or PF anyways, and um, as well, the, the airways, which should have been circular, were actually oval, very common. And uh, yeah, it uh, um, that kind of, well, I had many things that put, put things into perspective before that, but that was certainly uh, a big one there. Um, and there isn't a day go by, and it's usually first thing in the morning, you know, I think of my donor. Um, like, it, you are encouraged to write a letter uh, to the donor family. Um, and I did. And it's probably one of the most difficult letters I've ever written. And um, um, the the surgeon who had called called my wife that night after the surgery had said, you got a great, he got a great set of lungs. So... I've got to respect that and there's um, and respecting that you follow the doctor's orders. You, you take the appropriate medication, you do the testing. Like every morning I go through a set regime as far as testing that I have to do. Um, and you treat your lungs with respect. Like I'm not going to be putting myself into a situation where I'm, sucking in fumes or anything like that. Um, when I'm in public, I wear my mask uh, all the time. And, um, you know, it's kind of funny. You pass somebody else in Costco who's got got a mask on. You kind of got that, you know, you give them a wink and, you know, everybody's good. If, you know, you mask people uh, know what's going on here. And, uh, um you know, I, I, um, I, I want to emphasize that, you know, uh, I'm here because of somebody else and, you know, it, it's a bit of a cliche statement, but I'm only here because somebody else died and, you know, that's pretty scary. And whereas with some other organ transplants, uh, that's not the case. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's a bit of a different situation. They say lungs are the most fragile, even even uh, more fragile than a heart. And um, you know, you you treat them you treat them well, and um, um, you don't do anything that's going to harm them. You know, so yeah, that's um, that, that that's the way I respect it, and. Um, you know, certainly family, that's not even a concern as far as, you know, wearing a, wearing a mask and you've got to educate others sometimes as to why you're wearing a mask. And I, I've never been confronted in a negative way, but sometimes you get the odd, uh, query and, uh, you know, explain. And, um, now I, I do have a line prepared should anybody come at me. And uh, I'm not afraid to use it. Uh, and uh, but yeah, it, it's certainly uh, something that um, 
I, um, I fully understand and appreciate that I'm here because somebody else has passed away. And, um, yeah. So, and if ever given the opportunity, um, you know, I, I've left the door open to meet the family, but, um, I, I can understand, uh, them perhaps not wanting to. And if it happens, it happens. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. I'm, I, I understand that. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, it's very noble of you to do that, to, to be able to, to open yourself up to them and, and show that they're, they're whoever they had that passed away, their life had purpose going on beyond the death of if it was whoever they whoever they lost so i think that's that's really honorable it's it's also i think what we can take away from this even if you don't have a lung disease obviously many of our listeners do but just respecting and honoring each day and providing respect to other people is important regardless if you're if you got a second chance or not right just it's just being being a, a kind person so yeah i think that's all it comes down to and and it's really important so I, we, we are up to time now. I have to I have to cut us off, unfortunately. But I do have to say that this was one of the best interviews that I've I've done, and I'm extremely great grateful for how generous you have been with your time, Ian. So thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Jacob. Yeah, it was amazing. So I think with that, I'll just send us right to our outro. That was such an amazing interview with Ian. He definitely gave us an in-depth look into the journey of getting a double lung transplant and all of the ups and downs, trials and tribulations that go along with it. So thank you once again to Ian for sharing his time and insights and for being on the show. As we always do, I'll just end with my final three concluding thoughts from the episode. So the first is a little less about lung health and just about how amazing of a career that Ian had in seeing the country by working for the RCMP and obviously all of the really cool things that go along with that, like forensics analysis and instructing at the Canadian Police College and being a division manager. I think that is just incredibly interesting, obviously, with the field that I'm in, uh, being a law student, this really draws me, it, it interests me, I should say. Criminal law isn't the only type of law. There's there's many different kinds that you can study different kinds of law, but criminal law has always held a special place in my heart. Even when I remember months ago when I was still working full-time with Alberta Lung, a co-worker of mine told me about this opportunity to interview Ian having had a double lung transplant and I immediately jumped at it he went into my schedule because it's just such his career is so interesting and I think it really goes a long way in establishing that anyone can suffer from lung disease a a person as fit as a police officer can suffer from lung disease so yeah, I think that, that that's my first concluding point, and it, and it just all ties back into how interesting of an interview that this was, and that that formed the basis of it. My second concluding point is about the lack of social support and interaction with other people that Ian and his wife experienced post transplant, and how breathing space will be an amazing opportunity to solve this problem. I, I remember having conversations with uh, the CEO of Alberta Lung, Lee Allard, and talking about how amazing of a place breathing space will be. Not only will it be a place for 
those having lung transplants to have a place to rest their head and save them uh, the financial cost of accommodations that way but also it's going to be filled with people who are in the process different stages of the process of getting a lung transplant so being able to converse like ian said with not only other people other patients who are getting lung transplants but also with their caregivers and offering words of advice words of encouragement it's just going to be an incredible place so again if you haven't seen the red rings go online go to ablung.ca it's an incredible building that is going to be built in edmonton right near the university of alberta hospital where lung transplants take place in alberta so please go look at the renderings donate if you can if you have the means as it's it's truly an incredible and worthy cause my final concluding point is the importance of green shirt day and organ donation organ donation gave ian a second chance at life just like it does for hundreds and thousands of other canadians ian saying that there isn't a day goes by that he doesn't think of his donor really shows the impact that being an organ donor can have on the life of another Canadian and and another entire family. So I just really encourage you to consider being an organ donor, consider doing that at your next trip to uh, an Alberta Registry's office. Um, it, it could obviously save a life. And if that's not uh, incredibly important in, in, in the grand scheme of things, I don't know what is. So consider being an organ donor, organ, organ donor uh, learn all about Green Shirt Day when that comes around in April. Wear your green shirt on Green Shirt Day. Donate to the cause. And yeah, just be, I encourage everyone to be an advocate for this as, as it's an amazing chance to, to kind of give back after, maybe after you are no longer living. Obviously, that's when organ donation takes place. So it's, it's an incredible legacy to live, I would say. And yeah, I, I don't really have much more to say other than that. Le leaving a legacy like that would touch many other people. As a first on the podcast, I have a concluding point, 3A. I say 3A because it's just sort of a funny thing that I noticed at the end of the interview with Ian. And all I could think about uh, when Ian said that fellow mask wearers give each other a wink when passing each other in the supermarket or on the street or anything... All I could think of uh, was, well, two things. One was my friend Allie, who does the Jeep salute when she passes other other people who are also driving Jeep Wranglers. I think that's pretty funny. And also my friend Nicholas, uh, who does uh, a motorcycle wave when he's riding his bike and he passes other bikers. So it's just a little uh, sign of solidarity with each other so I, I think that's pretty funny and it, it drew a comparison in my life with some of my friends okay well that'll wrap up my concluding thoughts and this episode of the show remember to visit www.ablung.ca for any questions you may have and to donate we really appreciate any and all support from all the amazing lung health champions across alberta and for that matter across canada Perfect. So I think with that, I'll leave you with our motto, just remember to breathe.